Over the past few decades, it's become pretty much standard practice for Hollywood and the news media to portray Christians and Christian leaders for the most part as bumbling buffoons or crazed zealots, crooked con artists or pathetic wimps. Now, while there's been no shortage of bad examples within Christianity to feed these notions, I think it's fair to say that believers in general are represented in rather negative ways. The largely self-appointed cultural elite seem to love to either catch us at our worst or play up the aspects of our faith that they find the most offensive to their sensibilities. The truth of the matter is that we are often hypocrites of the worst sort. And it does hurt to have our mistakes hung out to dry on the line for all the world to see. Yet it seems that outsiders love to make fun of our faith, sometimes even of any sort of faith, even when we are behaving in complete compliance with orthodox teachings. We find ourselves living these days in a largely non-Christian culture, where even many of those who call themselves Christians demonstrate very limited knowledge or practice of the faith. That can be very discouraging to us and make it all the more difficult for us to remain faithful. It's therefore good for us to regularly challenge ourselves about our faith, to undergo a spiritual gut check of sorts. Like an athlete preparing for a sporting event or a soldier training for combat, we need these exercises in order to emphasize the fundamentals, and to strengthen and sharpen our Christian knowledge and skills. Having a regular worship life, just like having a regular workout plan at the gym, is a key element of this exercise. And in that worship, we find ourselves confronted with a variety of faith-building exercises and activities that help keep us spiritually toned and spiritually conditioned. In confession, We acknowledge our sins and we engage in that ongoing life of repentance that Luther wrote is at the very heart and core of the Christian existence. In the liturgy and in the creeds, we repeat again and we ingrain the patterns of our praise and our beliefs, things that are as basic as sit-ups, push-ups, or jumping jacks. In the weekly variety that we receive of scripture readings and hymns and prayers and sermons, We exercise our ears and we sharpen our minds in the knowledge and understanding of God's Word. It's like practicing specific plays or specific tactics. And in the offering, we lay it all out there on the field, the mission field, committing ourselves to the goals that our Savior has given us. We hold nothing back from Him, the source and the object of our faith. And finally, In the Lord's Supper, in its reception, we are given the refreshment and the nourishment we need to be cleansed and strengthened in preparation for confronting once again a hostile world and its demon prince and for doing ongoing battle with them and with our own sinful natures. We do know that being here week in and week out isn't always the joy to us that it should be. But we also know that just like a regular commitment to good physical health and fitness, it's by regular participation in the exercise of our faith that God gives us the strength that we need, the knowledge and the skills necessary to ensure that faith's survival and that faith's growth. 
That's his promise to us. We also know that those outside of the church find this both to be laughable and offensive. And sadly, there are even many who claim to be within the family of the baptized who reject the regular exercise of their spiritual muscles, who want to go it alone. They somehow think that they can remain fit and ready in spite of never coming in to practice their faith or just showing up occasionally and at convenient times. Others are offended by the repetition of what they consider to be the same old patterns week in and week out. But the fact remains, you don't get to be any good at anything without practicing the basics over and over again. If you get bored or offended and you reject those basics, you're not going to be spiritually fit and spiritually strong. Your faith will atrophy. Your soul will get flabby. And your heart for God will get clogged with the fat things of this world and will slowly and painfully die. All the warning signs are there. So, you can take offense at what God shows you and gives you and ignore or reject these warning signs like much of the world does. If you do, you will be far more popular with others. You'll be more acceptable to the world and less uncomfortable in it. And you'll die. On the other hand, you can heed God's warnings. Hear His promises and not take offense. You can get your spiritual exercise, remain strong in the Lord, and let Him help you to withstand the temptation to fall away or to fall into laxness. And you will live. It's really the same pattern of faith and trust that's existed before the fall into sin and throughout history. God reveals himself to his creatures, and we either take offense and rebel at what we see and what we hear, or we humbly receive that revelation, and we repent of what we have become. Captured by God's love and mercy, though, we, we live in a constant tension between being under his grace and letting the devil pull us away toward disaster. Jesus issues two such warnings in today's gospel lesson. The first warning is conveyed to John the Baptist's disciples when they come to our Lord at the prophet's request to inquire about the true identity of Jesus. John was concerned whether or not Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ, the promised one who would fulfill not only John's own prophecies, but those of the ages. Jesus' reply to John lets the man draw his own conclusions from the evidence that's been revealed. Miraculous cures and, and resurrections are taking place. The preaching of the gospel of the kingdom is happening. All of the signs are there. The signs that John and the prophets of old had all indicated would accompany the coming of the Christ. They are hard things to understand. But to those who would accept them without offense, Jesus promises great blessings. He challenges John and John's disciples to not let the difficulties that the preaching of that kingdom might present to tempt them to reject it. But Jesus has more to say this day. This time to the crowds who now, now follow him as they had once followed John. He issues another warning after confronting them with yet another challenge. He wants them to explain, or at least to contemplate in response to his rhetorical questions, their prior behavior concerning John the Baptist. 
Why had they come to see John, he wants to know. Had they spent the time and undertaken the hardships of their journeys from where they lived merely out of curiosity? Would they have come out into the wilderness to see and to hear someone of no interest, someone who had nothing to offer them? Or was it that what John was preaching and doing somehow resonated with them, with something deep within them, a deep void and a hungry longing that begged to be filled and satisfied? They hadn't come out because John was shy and embarrassed about the message he was preaching. Clearly he was no quivering reed or blade of grass shaking in the slightest breeze. He wasn't a pretty boy either, attracting people with fancy clothes and the trappings and the trophies of worldly success. Doing things according to John's preaching would not make you wealthy or popular, comfortable or healthy, and it wouldn't fill huge arenas or buy helicopters and tailored suits and beachfront homes either. John's message was a message of tough but tender love. He didn't sugarcoat it, nor did he try to suggest that our chief problem, our sinfulness and our need for forgiveness, didn't carry significant consequences or didn't have any urgency to it. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, was John's message. In other words, turn. Turn around from your current direction because only death awaits you at the end if you don't. That's never going to be a popular message. It will always give offense. People who hear it usually will reject it because it calls into question their priorities, their actions, their values, and their judgment. How often do we really like to hear that we are wrong, dead wrong? That's why the world, only hearing that much of the message, often rejects the rest. They hear only the rejection of the self, the turning away from that which defines them as people of the world. <laughs> and we don't like to give that up. But repentance, a fleeing from evil and denial of self was not the entirety of John's message. Nor was John the conduit of the entire gospel in all of its fullness either. John was the preparer. He was not the server. He was not the fulfiller of the gospel. Jesus says to the crowds that among those born of women, no one has arisen who is greater than John the Baptist. And that is completely true. Those who are merely children of the flesh, no matter their fame and wealth and power and accomplishments in this life, can never hope to measure up to that brash, rough-and-ready tough guy, John. That's because John's greatness isn't measured on account of his birth of a woman even if it was a miraculous birth from the aged womb of Elizabeth. John's greatness is only in the righteousness that he received from Christ. It springs forth of his birth of water in the Spirit, the same origin from which your only true greatness comes. It is a greatness not your own, because it is a righteousness not your own. We are all born of women, it is true, but that does not make us great nor does our worldly status or accomplishments. If anything, those things make us all the more pathetic and all the more distant from God. It is in our other birth, our spiritual birth, and in our adoption as God's sons and daughters that we are made heirs of the kingdom of heaven. This is our true greatness, our lasting legacy, because it has been promised, 
It has been earned. It has been given. And it has been sustained by the author and perfecter of our faith. God Himself. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now our sinful nature wants to rebel against an external foreign righteousness and greatness because we want the glory of greatness for ourselves. That's why the world finds the message of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, so offensive. It's why Christians and Christianity suffer rejection, ridicule, and even violence. Yet even when we are seemingly imprisoned by our culture with the threat of imminent death looming over us, the church must not quiver. It must not shake in the wind like a reed. For we are not only are we the least in the kingdom of heaven and the great ones born of, of the Spirit as well as of women, we have another task as well. Upon us has fallen the mantle of John the Baptist to proclaim that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We follow the path of Moses and Malachi, of Jeremiah and Joel, of Ezekiel and Elijah. And we convey that message of repentance and the coming Messiah to a world that prefers the comforts of worldly palaces to the offense of the wilderness. But our message carries more news now than what John had to tell. The news is that the kingdom of God has already come. It dwells among us in the flesh and blood of Him who was the firstborn of woman in spirit, the eternal, the only begotten of the Father, the first crop of Calvary's tree of salvation, and the first fruits of all who will rise from the grave. Let the offense of the message of repentance and salvation be your assurance that God's way is not the world's way. Grasp firmly to the promises of Christ with the strong exercised muscles of your faith, the faith that He offers to help you develop and to be blessed. Acknowledge John as the new Elijah, the one who came to bear witness to the Messiah. And let Jesus keep you as a cleansed, healed, and hopeful child of our Heavenly Father, now and forever. Those who have ears to hear, let them hear the good news and the blessed call of our Savior, Jesus Christ. In His holy name, amen.